The New England Law Review podcast is produced by New England Law Boston, an independent law school located in downtown Boston. Hi, I'm Allison Shea, the editor-in-chief of the New England Law Review, and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Laspinato. We are thrilled to welcome professors Lawrence Friedman and Victor Hansen to the studio today, who will share their thoughts on the authorization to use military force. Yes, hi, Allison. Professor Friedman teaches constitutional law, information privacy law, national security law, and state constitutional law at New England Law. Um, before joining the faculty here, he was a visiting assistant professor of law at BC Law School and a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School. Professor Hansen teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, and ethics at New England Law. Um, before joining the New England Law faculty in 2005, he served a 20-year career in the U.S. Army, most of that time as a JAG Corps officer. In his last military assignment, he served as a regional defense counsel for the U.S. Army Trial Defense Service. Well, it's great to have you both here today. We are very much looking forward to this. Um, the AUMF was put into place as a direct result of the September 11th terrorist attacks, so it's especially fitting to be discussing this today on the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attacks. Professor Hansen, can you start by giving us a little bit of background on the AUMF and how it came to be? Sure. As you just mentioned in your introductory piece, um, the AUMF, the Authorization to Use Military Force, came about right on the heels of 9-11. If you recall, uh, soon after the 9-11 attacks, there was uh, certainly a call by uh, the president and others to respond militarily to the attacks and primarily the idea was to um, attack the terrorist bases in Afghanistan where evidence suggested that the origins of the 9-11 attack uh, came and where much of the training came from. So um, Congress at the same time wanting to show uh, their support uh, for the president's uh, decision or the need to provide a military response um, authorized the uh, use of military force via the AUMF. Uh, so it came about as a direct response to 9-11 attacks and its intent was, at least initially, to provide additional congressional legal support for the president to use the, the uh, force necessary to deal with uh, terrorist groups who were responsible for 9-11 attacks, primarily Al-Qaeda and affiliated groups. So that was its origin. It has certainly changed and morphed since then, but it, it did originate around the 9-11. Great. Professor Friedman, anything you want to add there? I think it's important to remember that the AUMF was put together by Congress in consultation with the White House very, very quickly. That within three days of the September 11th attacks, the Senate and the House had sent a bill to the President for his signature, the AUMF, and that the members of Congress and probably uh, the White House staff didn't anticipate at the time the long life that this authorization would have. I'd agree with that, and I, I guess um, it's been many, many years since, since World War II that Congress formally declared war, but I think you could say that the AUMF probably, at least uh, in our generation, was, is probably the closest thing to a declaration of war without it being a formal declaration of war that we can point to legislatively. legislatively. Would you agree with that? I would. As Professor Hansen just said, we, we're just not in the business of declaring war anymore. International law has changed the relations between nations have changed, and so the modern equivalent are these authorizations, but typically they are not done so quickly, so hastily, uh, and without thinking, frankly, about what their effect would be sometime down the road. Oh, yeah. Professor Hansen, um, 
Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the AUMF and compare the state of affairs in 2001 versus where we are today? Sure, and as Professor Friedman just alluded to, um, the, the language of the AUMF was fairly broad, but it, Congress did include some limiting components to the authorization, specifically limiting it to Al-Qaeda and affiliated terrorist organizations that were resp responsible for the 9-11 attacks. So I think at least at the time, Congress's notion was to provide this authorization specifically to go after those individuals and organizations that were directly or perhaps somewhat indirectly responsible for the 9-11 attacks. Now, since that time, as you're well aware, uh, the United States has been involved in the Middle East and Afghanistan, North Africa, fighting terrorist groups and terrorist organizations for quite some time. There has been no additional authorization. And certainly many of the terrorist organizations or individuals that the United States has attacked and targeted since then, their uh, relationship to the 9-11 attacks is attenuated at best and non-existent at, at worst in, in many cases. So what's happened over time is, uh, since Congress has not provided any additional authorization, uh, a series of administrations, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the, and the Trump administration, have used the authorization that Congress gave uh, via the AUMF to engage in a number of uh, combat operations, and those include uh, troops on the ground in various locations in North Africa, in the Middle East, and elsewhere. It has included the use of drone strikes, um, not only in Afghanistan, but other places like Pakistan, uh, and throughout the Middle East, Yemen, uh, North Africa. So what we've seen is an ev evolution, and this is, not, this is not unusual for the executive to take whatever authority that's been given and to push it as far as it can go, but that's certainly been the case with the AUMF over the a decade plus that it's been in effect, is that uh, it has been cited to and used and relied on uh, to engage in a number of combat operations, military operations, uh, throughout the Middle East, certainly, and North Africa, um, well beyond what the language of the um, authorization specifically allowed for. And we've reached a point where not just ordinary Americans, but members of Congress are wondering how do these operations in, say, Africa, uh, in which uh, American troops have been injured and killed, how are these authorized? Well, it turns out, to the surprise of some members of Congress, it all comes back to the AUMF. Has there been any congressional pushback on the overbreadth of the application of the AUMF? Well, it, I think it depends on what you mean by pushback. There's an effort right now by Senators Flake and King to have a new authorization that uh, takes a look back at what's happened uh, since September 11th and tries to craft some guidance for the president going forward. The president, of course, doesn't think that that's necessary. As Professor Hampton said, both President Trump, like his predecessor, President Obama, have essentially taken the AUMF and run with it. And they'd rather just see this authorization stay in place. But the members of Congress, as I said, are surprised to learn exactly where American troops are and the danger that they are in and uh, <laughs> seem to have been uh, painfully unaware of that they actually authorized this through the AOMF. Yeah, and just a little more on that point, uh, uh, not to get overly technical or historical, but in, a, in the post-Vietnam era, Congress passed the War, War Powers Act, which was intended to require the president to provide some degree of reporting to Congress before uh, troops were deployed, for particularly for over a longer period of time. Well. Certainly the executive sees the AUMF as, a, as authorization that doesn't require uh, the need to report to Congress 
And so you had recently members of Congress were surprised that we had uh, soldiers on the ground in various places and were in harm's way. Um, so when you say pushback, there has been comments and commentary over time by a number of senators. I think Senator Graham has uh, articulated at times the need to, to rein in the AUMF. But what often happens is those, uh, I guess, forays and or efforts into uh, providing new authorization or reining in the AUMF seem to always be overcome by events of the moment and the need to respond quickly. And so it's very difficult, it seems, for Congress to garner any um, political will or political support to really sit down and, and craft a new authorization. Um, so whatever has happened has been in fits and starts and not been very successful up to this point. So with the AUMF now being in place for 16 years, is there a concern that this could just be the new uh, mode of operation for military force, or is there a potential that this could actually be um, changed? Well, I think that's the question, whether or not the current effort to re at least revisit the AUMF, if not produce a, no a new authorization, whether that's going to gain any traction. And from my perspective, and I think Professor Hansen would agree, there are at least two important reasons why Congress should act. One, because the framers designed our Constitution as a system of checks and balances, and the check that is the power to declare war, as we said, discussed earlier, isn't one that is really used. In, instead, the check comes through congressional authorizations, and Congress needs to make its voice heard. Congress is the most representative, the most accountable of all of the um, departments of the federal government. And presumably, they should have a say in whether or not the president commits American soldiers to actions in distant lands that have, at best, only an attenuated relationship to the reasons why the AUMF was drafted. And second, a new authorization would at least provide a benchmark against which we could compare what the president is doing to what Congress thinks the president should be doing. It's a means by which we can hold the president accountable, which probably has never been more important. And I, I think the other concern is that whether you, whether you ask if this is the new normal or not, I mean, frankly, in some regards, obviously this has been going on for 16 years now, so it's hard to say it's new, but even prior to the AUMF, there's always been a concern by Congress uh, to acquiesce um, in, in the president's actions. And it's always a political calculation on the part of Congress to say whether it's better to be silent and let the president alone take the political risks and, and get the political rewards for a military action, or whether Congress feels the need to uh, chime in and assert its own political um, will, so to speak. Um, I just think it's a really bad precedent for Congress to continue to govern, if you will, and Congress doesn't govern per se, but for Congress to continue to authorize by silence or acquiescence. I think that erodes uh, the most representative branch of government's authority over time. And um, I think both Professor Friedman and I are concerned that as that happens more and more, it becomes all too easy for the executive to continue to assert authority and for Congress to continue to take a back seat. And that's not what our framers intended. How would you gauge the level of awareness regarding the AUMF and the issues? Do constituents, are constituents aware of the issues that are presented? Are they putting pressure on their, on their Congress representat congressional representation? Or is it kind of a silent issue that goes uh, more or less overlooked in today's political climate? I would say in the current political climate, there's probably not a lot of pressure by constituents uh, on, with respect to the AUMF. 
And frankly, many of the other aspects that we saw initially in the Cold War on terrorism, I don't think there's a lot of political pressure to do anything different in Guantanamo. In some of the other places where I think legally there are real concerns about what's going on, I don't think there's a lot of uh, constituent pressure to uh, put on Congress or individual members of Congress, which is, I think, why it's important for academics such as ourselves to to keep on this issue and to keep raising it and to, to keep raising awareness. One reason there's less pressure is because in the modern day, fewer American lives are put at risk because of drones and the use of drones, which President Obama popularized. And that takes out, for Americans, um, the element of risk in losing their loved ones in some overseas land for reasons that they can't really understand. Instead, we just hear about drone strikes, which are conducted from the, the, the safety of the United States and don't necessarily involve any risk to American forces. And there's a whole series of legal issues and components regarding drone strikes that are not directly related to the AUMF, other than to note that um, it is via the AUMF largely that the president feels the authority to engage in drone strikes, including uh, attacking, using drones to attack. What's interesting about this issue is that while a lot of Americans may throw up their hands and say this is a Congress that's not going to put any significant roadblocks in front of the president, this Congress actually has in the area of foreign relations and national security. Congress has curtailed the president's ability to uh, absolve Russia uh, involve, uh, in its involvement in Crimea and the Ukraine. And it seems like while Congress is perfectly willing to let the president do what he likes domestically, they still seem to recognize that national security, that in the area of national security, they need to play some role. Whether that will lead to a new authorization or a revised authorization is another matter. But unlike other issues, unlike a lot of domestic issues, it's, it's not entirely pointless to assume that Congress will act. I would agree, and I think it, it does illustrate the genius of the framers to create this system of checks and balances where um, and it's largely by political forces, not legal forces or otherwise, where um, the various branches, in this case Congress, we would hope, uh, feels the political need and the institutional need to take some action, if for no other reason than to preserve its own institutional authority. So we've mentioned the framers several times, and you know it makes me wonder, I'm sure there are some listeners out there that would argue, well, the framers weren't really, could they have been aware of modern day terrorism and what we, these uh, international and domestic threats that we face in current times and, you know, how, can you speak to that or any, um, any questions someone may have regarding the disparity between the world that the framers lived in versus the world that we live in today? I think the framers were frankly more aware. I mean, the framers came from a situation where they were literally facing an existential threat to their existence and the existence of this country. And in, in spite of that, they created a constitutional system of checks and balances. Um, so I think that they were probably more acutely aware of what a real threat looked like uh, than perhaps any other set of, uh, of governing individuals since, since the, the framing of the Constitution. And the genius in the fact that they were aware of that, they still recognized the need for, for checks and balances. So. If they could do it in, the, in that context, then I certainly think we can do it. 
Yeah, what the framers were aware of and what hasn't changed in 200 plus years is human nature. And their genius was to pit ambition against ambition, to have the branches of the government be in some sense in tension with each other as they compete for power. And sometimes that works just because ambition will check ambition. And sometimes it works because one branch recognizes deficiencies in one of the other branches. And there was a, 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 there's a sense, a collective sense, that action is required. Seems to be the school of thought where it's okay to undermine constitutional rights or the checks and balances if the safety of the nation is at stake. Could you speak to that um, briefly? Well, at least at present, the instances in which the executive presidents, Bush, Obama, and Trump, have sought to use their authority under the AUF against United States citizens have been relatively few. Professor Hansen mentioned one, drone strikes against U.S. citizens abroad. But no serious effort has been made to use that authority domestically, probably because even this president's advisors recognize that there are some lines that cannot be crossed. There are some actions that the people will not tolerate. And frankly, that judges will not, federal judges will not allow to happen. I would agree. And, um, you know, to your point about balancing uh, safety and protection, or rights and protections under the Constitution, again, that's the whole genius of the Constitution. Is it gets made flexible enough to work even in, or perhaps especially in those times, if the people we elect to, to do that fulfill their responsibility. Great. Well, thank you both for taking the time to chat with us today. We appreciate your insight, and it'll be interesting to see what happens as the AUMF continues to be in place or potentially revised or repealed or replaced. Great. Yes, thank you uh, for joining us today. Um, make sure to check back in January for our next segment. In the meantime, please follow us on social media, on Twitter, um, the New England Law Review, uh, at N-E-W-E-N-G-L-R-E-V, and New England Law Boston, at, at New England Law Boston. 